We've been moving through the Exodus, uh, and we come this morning to Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Our New Testament complementary passage is Revelation chapter 15. If you would open your Bibles to John's Revelation chapter 15, in honor of God's word, please stand. Revelation chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15, reading verses 1 through 21, and continuing in the reading of God's word. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. With the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. 
There are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on the ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes. Make us alive and joyful. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So if you've been in worship services, if you've been in different worship services outside the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but maybe even within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, you know that basically all Christian worship services are the same, with one exception. They all preach, they all have a sermon, maybe interesting, maybe boring, but everybody preaches. They all generally have prayer. They all, you know, kind of have an opening and a closing. But the big difference is music, isn't it? The big difference is the singing. What is it that is sung And why in these various churches? Those are really the marked differences in between Christian churches. In Uganda, no matter where we went, whether it was to a church of the people that we were working with, or even to an Anglican church, or to a charismatic slash Pentecostal church, wherever it was that we worshipped, there was this song that was kind of a standard that everybody sang. Probably like in the U.S., uh, probably, you know, no matter where you go, you're going to hear, Be Thou My Vision. Uh, Everybody sings, Be Thou My Vision. Uh, Whether you're Pentecostal or Anglican or Presbyterian or whatever. Uh, Everybody's for Amazing Grace, things like that. Well, this song in Uganda that was kind of the standard song was there is something today in the house of the Lord. There is something today in the house of the Lord. There is something today in the house of the Lord. Hallelujah today in the house of the Lord. There is clapping today in the house of the Lord. There is clapping today in the house of the Lord. There is clapping today in the house of the Lord. Hallelujah today in the house of the Lord. There is jumping today in the house of the Lord. There is jumping today in the house of the Lord. And it went on and on and on and on. Through, there, there is sitting today in the house of the Lord. There is laughing today in the house of the Lord. There is dancing today. It went on and on and on and on and on. It's a song that never really gave me the feels. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm too uptight and white. Uh, but I just never felt this song just lifted me up before the throne of grace and showed me Jesus Christ. Now let's flip the narrative. Somebody comes into Sterling for the first time. 
never used to quote-unquote traditional worship, and they pick up this thing. Oh man, immediately, that puts you in the uncool crowd. Use a hymn book? What is this about? And then, what do we sing from this hymn book? A psalm. What is that? What are, I have never sung a psalm in my life. What Psalms are things that you read from the Bible. You don't sing these things. There's nothing that sets a congregation apart more than what we sing. Is our singing intentional? Is your singing intentional? In this month's New Horizon, there's an article about some new home missionaries, uh, church planters, Chris and Sarah Drew. And they were both ordained ministers in the mainline Presbyterian church, the PCUSA. They were both ordained ministers in the PCUSA. And they were becoming more reformed, and so they went, somehow ended up at an OPC congregation in 2016, and Sarah had grown up in the church. She'd been baptized. She'd grown up in the liberal PCUSA Presbyterian Church. And she went into this OPC worship service. And she said her mind was blown away because it was the first time that she had ever heard people singing as if they really meant it. And beloved, that ought to be a little, I don't know, concerning or a little challenging maybe for each one of us. If someone walked in here for the first time, let's be clear, someone walking in here for the first time is probably going to hear you singing a psalm for the first time in their life. They probably have never heard Psalm 124 sung before. They may have read it, but they probably have never heard it sung. What impression did they walk away from you singing it? Did they walk away? Now, Psalm 124 is one of my favorite psalms. Because it's associated in my mind with the Scottish martyrs during the killing times after the reinstatement of the crown, and the Scottish martyrs were outlawed, and they went up to their deaths. They stepped up the stairs of the scaffold, singing Psalm 124. Now my soul has escaped like a bird from the snare. Their net is rent. My only help is in Jehovah's name. What a glorious, glorious statement. But do they get that from the way that you and I sing it now? Amazing grace. Somebody comes in, they probably heard that song before. But do they get the sense that you're amazed? Do they get the sense from the way that you and I engage in song, engage in worship song, that we, are responding to something 
amazing that God has done in our lives. Now, I'm aware, obviously, of the time. We've been a little bit behind in our regular liturgy this morning, and I'm guessing there are already some young people who have been doing very well about sitting for a long, long time, and you're hoping I'm not about to do a 45-minute sermon. You're right. I won't. I will move through this with some haste because of the time, but I don't want to short changes. Sarah Drew, commenting on the singing that she heard, says that she heard rich, beautiful, theological hymns that told of God's goodness and prodded us to holier living. And people sang like they believed it. Here we've got the first hymn in the Bible. First time. First time that we have a hymn, that we have a song, a worship song written down for us in the scriptures. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, is this song. And it's broken up into three stanzas. And you can see the, 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 the end of each stanza is a verse which repeats the phrase, O Lord. And so verses 1 through 7 is the first stanza with verse 7 being our O Lord stanza. I'm sorry, verses 1 through 6. Uh, verses 1 through 6, with verse 6 being the O Lord stanza. Verses 7 through 11, with verse 11 being the O Lord stanza. And then the third stanza uh, is verses 12 down to 18, with the O Lord in verses 17 and 18. So, three stanzas to this hymn. And presumably, Miriam and the women are providing a response as, as the congregation is singing. So, so there's kind of a back and forth here. As the congregation is singing, Miriam and the women are, are providing this joyful response on the tambourines and with dancing and the Lord has triumphed. So I want to look very quickly at these three stanzas because, and again, I want to underscore this, Every other hymn in the Bible, every single other hymn in the Bible follows this pattern. This pattern sets the entire pattern of hymns throughout Scripture. Now, just as a, as a very quick comment, for the person walking in here and picking this thing up, and going, ugh. You know, you just, you just went immediately into the old category. The children of Israel sang the song of Moses for a thousand years. The song hung around for a thousand years. They based every single one of their hymns on elements from the song of Moses. And that glorious passage that we just read in Revelation, which is of the end day, the end state, when God declares all creation to come unto Jesus Christ, and we are finally at the end of days, what are we singing? The song of Moses and of the Lamb. 
And if you'll notice, the themes that come out in that song that's recorded in Revelation 15 are the exact themes of the Song of Moses of Exodus 15. So I think if God doesn't get tired of the same theme, the same song, over and over and over again, and if He commands His people to use that song over and over as the cable that defines all of their worship music for the rest of human history, then you and I probably can give it a little bit of our attention this morning. The first stanza, verses 1 through 6, celebrates God as this great warrior king for Israel. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become uh, my salvation. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast back into the sea. God is this warrior for Israel. Verse 2 particularly, the Lord is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. Now what's the context of this hymn? They've just seen Egypt coming up at them, Red Sea behind them, they're trapped, they're hopeless, there is no way, and then the cloud, the pillar of fire blocked between them and Egypt, Moses lifts up his staff, they walk through on dry land, they look back as the sun is rising in the morning, it's been an all night thing, taking them through on dry land as the sun rises up, Pharaoh and his army come in to destroy them, to wipe them out, and the sea crashes back in on them. They have just witnessed something pretty impressive. They've witnessed God do something that there was no chance that they could do. Only God could fight their battles for them. In the midst of that Red Sea, and certainly before the Red Sea split, beloved, the children of Israel knew very well what it meant to be helpless. They knew absolutely, personally, experimentally, what it meant to be without hope. And beloved, you and I do as well. You and I know what it means to have no strength. You and I know what it means to be able to say, I don't know what to do. There is no way out of this. I've got no answers. And what? Is it that makes this hymn stand out? That in that moment when the children of Israel have no answers, when the children of Israel have no hope, God shows up. Their hope is in Him. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the one who will deliver you from the hand of your greatest enemy. Your recognition of your own inability and weakness, it may drive you to therapy, and it may drive you to medication. I've said before, I think this is the most therapt generation that we've ever experienced. Everybody's in therapy. Many with two or three therapists. I've got a therapist for this thing, and I've got a therapist for that thing. And yet at the same time, I don't think anybody would say we're the most mentally healthy generation of people. I'm not knocking therapy by any stretch. Don't hear me saying that. 
What I am saying, though, is that with all of our therapy that's going on, I don't think anybody says, wow, what a mentally healthy place American society is in 2022, or whatever year this is. 21? 22. Your recognition of your inability may very well drive you to a therapy or to a medication. Beloved, does your recognition of your inability first and foremost drive you to God? It did for the Israelites. Does it for you? That's what this hymn, that's what this hymn tells us. That's the first stanza of this hymn. In my desperate condition, in my inability, God is my warrior. God is my strength. God is my deliverer. He fights my battles for me. And beloved, that same God is the one that will fight your battles for you. Let your inability, your fear, your weakness, your hurt, all of those things, let it be the backdrop against which God and His sustaining power, His healing power, His delivering power, shines most brightly. Verses 7 through 11 emphasize the destruction of Egypt. Uh, This great event, the enemy said, verse 9, I will pursue, I will overtake. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Beloved, it's in your moment of greatest distress that you are going to feel and see God's deliverance most powerfully. Think of Psalm 130. Martin Luther brought this psalm forward uh, in, in, in his hymn. From depths of woe I raised to thee the voice of lamentation. You know, that, you know that hymn. But Psalm 130 is from the depths I cry. Out from the depths. Where do you think the Israelites were? They were in the depths. The Red Sea is piled up on either side of them and Egypt is charging after them with chariots and swords and whips and bows and arrows and all the bad stuff. And from the very depths, they cried out and saw God's mighty deliverance. Until in your deepest distress... Until in your deepest fear, until in your deepest crisis, you cry to God from that place, you will never know the power of God. You will never be amazed at who God is and what He has done. I think that's part of the problem of our modern American day is we have so many things that say to us, come here for relief. And God becomes either the third or fourth down on the list, or we're so numbed, chemically numbed, by the time we get there, that it isn't as rich and powerful. But until you know 
what it is to be in the depths of despair, you'll never know the power of God's glory and deliverance. And let me, let me say this, because this is where we get off balance a lot. Beloved, that deliverance may very well not be instantaneous. That deliverance may very well take time. It may very well be a process. That deliverance out of that pain, out of that injustice, out of that sorrow, out of that crisis may be something that God works over your period of months or even years. But he is still delivering. And he is still exercising his power. And on the other side of that, beloved, you will be able to testify of the glory of God. Paul says in Romans that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. So think of that situation. Think of that circumstance and ask yourself, is it good? That, that thing that you are struggling with, that thing that you need deliverance from, that crisis that you are in, think of your relationship right now, where you stand with God in that thing, and ask yourself, is it good? And if your answer is no, then God isn't done fixing it yet. That's the life of faith. That's the life that clings in faith to God. I don't know how this illness is going to bring glory. Because it hurts. I don't like it. It hurts emotionally. It hurts physically. I don't like this experience. But I know that all things work together for good. And if I can't yet stand here and say, this is good, then God's not done working in it yet. But He will. He will bring this to good. And beloved, I, I don't want to be overly simplistic. I don't want to be overly simplistic. Because I know life is complicated. And there are so many, so many things. But I'll tell you, in our own life, Meredith and myself, most of you here know that we have dealt with some very challenging years with a child who struggled with mental illness, attempts at suicide, long-term hospitalizations, crises after crises, going to the emergency room and visiting in an inpatient psychiatric facility, we spent a Christmas morning, the whole family. You know what? Surprise news alert, it didn't feel good. I was not singing the praises of Jesus. There was no something today in the house of the Lord. It stank. It was hard. There were times that I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. When I was asking myself, what did I do to this child to create this mess? What have I done here? How is this my responsibility and my fault? All of these things. 
and more amounted to a long period of time. When I was hanging on. But beloved, I can also honestly say, and some of you have heard me say this in one-on-one counseling, I can honestly say, I am coming to the place. I'm not yet there on the other side of the Red Sea. I'm not yet there with the tambourines and the dancing. But I can see myself walking up the mountain. I can see myself walking up the bank. And I can see that there's going to be the tambourines and the dancing. And I can see that there's going to be a time when I can look at that and say, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for taking me through that very thing. It's taught me a host of things about me, about God. It's taught me that, you know what? I'm not God. And so every little thing that my children believe or do or don't do or whatever isn't directly related to me. A lot of this is just on them. Sorry. (laughs) Everything is not my fault. Vice versa, everything's not my credit. The fact that I have children that are walking with the Lord and strong doesn't mean you should be looking and patting me on the back and asking me to write the book. Because not only is it not my fault, probably not my credit either. (laughs) It's also placed me in a situation where I've been able to speak to a parent particularly that is seeing this, this, this crisis going on in their own household and be able to give them a reason for the hope that lies in me. To comfort them with the comfort with which I have been comforted. And I'm beginning to get to that place. I'm beginning to get there. Where I can say, yeah God, this is perfect. Is it the end? Only if it's good. If it's not good, it's not the end. Thirdly, the third stanza here, running from verses... 12 on down, is this testimony to the world. God's mighty deliverance, God being the warrior of Israel, God destroying Egypt, is not just for Israel's sake, but it's for the sake of the testimony to the world. You see that in verses 14, 15, inhabitants of Philistia, the chiefs of Edom are dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. God's work in your life, God's work in your circumstance is not just because you're so darn special. You're not just the cutest little thing and Jesus loves you to pieces. He's doing what He's doing in your life, this mighty work of deliverance, this mighty work of salvation in order to demonstrate His glory to the nations, in order to demonstrate His glory to the world. This is what it means to be a city on a hill. This is where Israel truly stands out from the nations. In this mighty deliverance, in this mighty redemption. This is the place at which your testimony becomes 
powerful. God will always display his glory. That's going to happen. God will display his glory. Your choice and my choice is are we going to reflect that glory? Are we going to be his instruments in him displaying that glory? And so, to wrap it up, here's our first hymn of Scripture. It's a mighty hymn of redemption. It's a mighty hymn of deliverance. And it's a hymn that focuses on the strength of God and our trust in Him. It's a hymn that focuses on God shattering His and our enemies. And it's a hymn that focuses on all the world seeing and giving glory to God. That's a good hymn. I like that hymn. God likes that hymn. It's an inspired hymn, obviously. But every hymn throughout the rest of Scripture follows that pattern. Every single one. All the way down to Revelation 15. And so, that's why we sing. Hymns that are a thousand years old, hymns that are two thousand years old, as well as hymns that are two years old. Because that's what Scripture does. So the challenge to you, the challenge to me, is, is this your singing? Is this your praise? I know this has been a race car drive through this passage. But beloved, I do want to leave you with that comfort, that knowledge of what God is doing. He is the same God. He will deliver you out of your deepest distress. And He will bring glory to His name. That's what we do when we sing His praises. And so plead with you, encourage you to lean in to that singing. Sing like Miriam with the tambourine and the dancing. Sing with a whole soul. And sing of the God of your salvation. Let us pray. Mighty God and gracious Heavenly Father, you truly are our great Redeemer, our friend. You are the one who delivers us from the depths of woe. You raise us up and seat us with our beloved Savior in heavenly places. Jesus Christ, you reign and rule, restraining and conquering us and all our enemies. And in the day of your rule, you are beautiful. Help us, Father, to rejoice and to trust. In Christ's name, amen.